so uh, Tim Keller has a book called Making Sense of God. It's kind of, um, he wrote that book, Reason for God, which was kind of like a modern day mere Christianity. Um, and because our society is increasingly kind of biblically illiterate, um, he wanted to write a book that even um, went further back to foundational issues and he wrote a book called Making Sense of God and he has this illustration of the power of hope in this book. So just throw it out here to get started. I've taken a little bit of editing license but the basic illustration is the same. So imagine that you have two women, the same socioeconomic status, um, they have similar educational background, uh, they're even similar in temperament and you hire both of them to do a boring, menial job that lacks any satisfaction of seeing the fruit of their labor, okay? So they're simply like a stop on the assembly line, you know? Insert A into B and pass it along. They gotta do this little part day in and day out, five days a week, eight hours a day for a year. The work is identical, the conditions are identical, temperature of the room, ventilation, number of breaks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The only difference is their pay. So you tell the one woman, at the end of the year, we'll pay you $25,000. Tell the other woman, at the end of the year, we'll pay you $25 million. And they don't know what the other one is going to be paid. So let's say six or eight weeks go by and imagine the nature of their attitudes and their conversation. So you can imagine woman number one, $25,000 woman number one, saying to woman number two, oh, isn't this tedious? Like, isn't this driving you nuts? Like, are you thinking of quitting? And woman number two is likely to say, yeah, sure, it's a little tedious, but doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> the point is not we all need a good salary. The point is we are all hope-based creatures. So you and I, hope-based creatures, we run on hope, and hope changes everything. It drives us. It keeps us going. Losing hope as a human being is dangerous business. So let's keep that in mind as we go to, admittedly, a pretty weird passage in Mark chapter 12. So if you're not there yet, Mark chapter 12, we're looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning, all right? So if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page. If somebody has it before me, go ahead and yell it out. <laughs> 8.48, okay? Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. So a little bit of context reminder here before we read it. So the authority of Jesus is central here in this section that we've kind of been in of late. Um, after the triumphal entry and the quote-unquote cleansing of the temple, you know, upending tables and all of this because the temple was being made a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer for all the nations. 
um, the leaders challenged Jesus and like, yo, what gives you the authority to do this? Like, who do you think you are? So they're challenging his authority because he's challenging their authority. And he tells a parable against them. Um, and then they come at him with three sets of questions. So last week we looked at the first set. The Pharisees and Herodians came together and challenged him. They were trying to trap him in his words. And then this morning the Sadducees have a question, different group. Um, they have a question for, them, for him. And then next week a scribe comes, and actually he's seemingly a little bit more sincere. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and Herodians are obviously disingenuous, and they're just trying to trap Jesus. And then after these three sets of questions, nobody dares to ask him any more questions, and then Jesus has a question um, for those who are listening. So here we go this morning, Mark 12, 18 to 27. The Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection in which we don't believe. When they rise again, which we don't even believe happens, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So there's our passage for this morning. I have to admit, when I first started looking at this, I thought, oh, maybe I should have chosen a bigger section. What in the world am I gonna say about application for us this week. Um, so there's actually quite a bit here, um, especially as we consider where this fits in to the big picture. We'll get to that. But we're going to look at it in three points. First point, question about the resurrection, verses 18 to 23. All right. The Sadducees came. They don't believe in the resurrection. Teacher, Moses wrote for us. Okay, so he's talking about the Pentateuch that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, leaves no child, the man must take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. So we just read that, right? So we need some background here. The Sadducees were a smaller group from aristocratic and kind of priestly families. So Caiaphas, for instance, the high priest, AD 18 to 36, was a Sadducee. The Sadducees rejected the Pharisees' extra-biblical traditions. Okay, so they actually weren't on the same page oftentimes. They only accepted the Pentateuch as canonical. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as you've seen in verse 18, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So as a group, they believed there was no basis for belief in the resurrection in the Pentateuch. So you may remember um, that Paul, so he was a Pharisee, right? 
At one point when he was in Jerusalem, he was being persecuted, treated unjustly, eventually on trial for his faith. He actually used this to his advantage. Anybody remember this? Acts 23, 6. Um, so he's on trial, and Paul perceived that one part of the people that were kind of trying him were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brother, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. <laughs> and when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly divided for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection nor angel nor spirit but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So he ended up like causing the group to be in an uproar and divided and it kind of worked to his advantage. Okay? You know, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So the other point of background here that's important is this whole custom of leverite marriage. Okay? Leverite marriage. So Levier in Latin apparently is brother-in-law, okay? So the custom is prescribed in Deuteronomy 25. Just track with me here. This is actually going to have practical import in our lives here soon. But let's just understand what in the world is going on in this strange passage first. So Deuteronomy 25.5. We'll read it quickly here. I think we've got it on the screen. If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, like outside the clan, to a pagan stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. The whole point is, it's shameful to refuse to do this. It's why God killed Onan, because he refused to do this. Okay? There's a beautiful picture of this being done in the book of Ruth. Right? Boaz is second in line. So first it has to be offered to this other guy, and he says, no, no, I don't want to redeem them. And then Boaz does, right? So this custom sounds really strange in our ears. And certainly, you know, we could tease this out some more. But suffice it to say, we can just say it was a very different cultural historical moment than our own. Unmarried women were much more vulnerable then than they are today, generally speaking. Children in that time were your retirement plan, your social safety net. So to be childless, it was both an issue, it, it's, it was shameful, dishonoring, and it was dangerous and created vulnerability. So <clears throat> James Edwards, we've quoted him uh, a number of times throughout this series. He makes a helpful comment when he says, the custom of leveret marriage was not devised as, for instance, polygamy and concubinage, which the Bible never condones, but just describes. Um, the custom of leveret marriage was not devised for the express purpose of allowing a man to have more than one wife, nor to condone sexual promiscuity or immorality. Leveret marriage was rather a compensatory social custom. It served to make amends, to compensate for losses, okay? 
a compensatory social custom designed to prevent intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles and to preserve honor and property within a family line in cases where a woman's husband was deceased. So, okay. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which means their question was obviously disingenuous. They're just trying to come up with a hypothetical that would make Jesus look foolish. So this, in logic, if any of you took logic or some of you kids are taking logic, this would be reductio ad absurdum. Proving a proposition false by showing it to be absurd. It leads to absurd, untenable conclusions. Okay, so for instance, if the world was flat, wouldn't we have people falling off the edge? Reductio ad absurdum. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, there we go. Um, So if they can show by simple common sense that the concept of the resurrection is absurd, it's crazy, it's ridiculous, then they think they'll win and strike a blow to Jesus' authority and discredit him among the people. That's what they're trying to do. So they're trying to exercise their authority and undermine his. So, okay, that much is clear. Also, I think we need to just recognize the fact that they view death as the end. Okay, James Edwards again, he says, they believed that at death the soul perished along with the body, and hence there were no future rewards or punishments. Like death, full stop, that's it, that's the end. Extinction, total annihilation. The ground wins, that's it. Which is actually kind of interesting that that's the view of most secular humanists or materialists or atheists in our day. So how does Jesus respond to this? Okay, point number two, he first clarifies the nature of the resurrection. Okay, so look at verses 24 and 25. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus doesn't mince words here. He tells them straight up, you're wrong. (laughs) And then he ends the thing down in verse 27. You're wrong. This is like a wrong sandwich. Here, eat this. He tells them they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I mean, that is a slap in the face. These are the Sadducees for crying out loud. I mean, Caiaphas, can you imagine saying this to the likes of Caiaphas? These were their areas of expertise. I mean, it's like telling Warren Buffett he knows nothing about investing. So Jesus is gentle and lowly. Amen. It's wonderful. And he will look you in the eye and tell you you are wrong. We can always count on Jesus to tell it like it is, to tell us the truth. He's never cruel or vicious, but he is not afraid to step on our toes in a forthright and clear way, and it's loving. Now, at the time, the majority opinion among Jews, Sadducees were kind of a small group, the majority opinion among Jews, okay, at least those that believed in the resurrection, right, was that married life actually continued into the resurrected state. Their expectation was as a, their expectation was of a general resurrection at the end of time, like when everything is made new, okay? So there, there's not a lot on the afterlife in the Old Testament. It's pre- pretty, pretty kind of misty and blurry, but there are a few texts. One of them, for instance, Daniel 12, 1 to 3, 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge over your people, and there shall be a, tr a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's this expectation of a general resurrection at the end of days. And most Jews believe that married life continued into that resurrected state. Jesus counters that expectation. And here we have a statement of Jesus that has caused not a few happily married, sincerely Christian couples to be disappointed and bummed out at the words of Jesus. No marriage in heaven. I mean, that seems like a loss. They don't even want to think about it. Maybe you're in that category. So we'll consider a little later what to make of this, but for now, just notice the rest of what Jesus says. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The point is not that we become angels in the resurrection. Angels are not made in the image of God. Humanity and angels are different categories altogether. Jesus is not saying we will become angels, but specifically related to marriage and procreation, don't forget the Sadducees question, we will be like angels. Okay, so R.T. France makes this comment. Earthly life is temporary and therefore requires the procreation of further life in the context of marriage for its continuance. But heavenly life is eternal and there is no place in it for procreation. Marriage and reproduction belong only to the earthly sphere. Note that it is marriage, not love, which Jesus declares to be inappropriate in heaven. Angels as eternal beings have no need to reproduce. We will be like angels. So the Sadducees made the mistake of thinking that the resurrection life in which they did not believe was just a continuation of the present conditions, you know, perhaps with kind of a minor upgrade. They didn't know or appreciate the scriptures or the power of God, okay? So there certainly is going to be continuity in the resurrection with life here and now. Jesus' body is the prototype of our resurrection bodies. He ate fish on the beach with the disciples. But there's also discontinuity. It's so much greater than what we know that we dare not limit the nature of the eternal resurrected state by thinking it's just, you know, kind of like a new and improved just slightly better version of our best life now. So I, I don't think that we can really presume to know all of God's reasons for this being the case in the resurrected eternal state, okay? But it does seem worth noting how practically important this would be to widows and widowers that get remarried, just at a really practical level. Have you ever thought of this? If there was marriage in heaven, which spouse are you paired with for eternity? I hadn't thought about that until this week. I was like, huh, like the one you were married to the longest? The one that you liked being married to the, mo like the most? I mean, what if the one who died first 
had also been a widow and had been married before and what if she preferred husband one and you preferred her over wife number one? God can't, do you see what I'm saying? Reductio ad absurdum, I'm doing it the other direction. Everybody with me? Okay. So, whatever the positive nature of resurrection that excludes marriage, we should know and believe that it will not be a bummer. It will not be loss. It's not gonna be worse than the best scenario here. Okay, so there's this quote. I think I've, it's been years and years since I've used it here, but C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, has this quote, and he speaks candidly, but it is so helpful, okay? So here we go. The letter and spirit of scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternative either of bodies, which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else of a perpetual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. <laughs> on receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life we do not know, accepting glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits, we anticipate fasting. If we, brothers and sisters, think little of the resurrection and eternal state, it's because we think little of the resurrection and the eternal state. Everybody with me? If we think little of it in terms of frequency, it actually making a difference in our life, it's because we don't think much of it. Like, it's not that important. We should know better. We need to know the scriptures and the power of God. We need to know better so that our hope is strong in the blessedness of the hope that's ours. So, First, Jesus clarifies the nature of the resurrection, and now he's going to point the Sadducees to the hope of the resurrection, okay, and the God of that resurrection hope. So he clarified the nature. Now he's going to talk about the hope of the resurrection and the God of that resurrection hope. Point number three, verses 26 to 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, Exodus 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So remember, the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch as canonical, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. So Jesus did not go to Daniel 12 to prove the resurrection. They would have just been like, yeah, we don't even accept that. He didn't go to 
Isaiah 25 and 26. He didn't go to Psalm Psalm 73. He didn't go to Psalm 16. He plays on their, their canonical turf. Okay, you guys only believe in the Pentateuch? I'll make my point from the Pentateuch. So have you not read? Ouch. I mean, that's just like in their face. In the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, He's going to prove his point by using an argument they can't dismiss on the basis of only accepting Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so in doing so, Jesus maintains he displays his authority rather than allowing these challengers to undermine it. So how does he do it? It's actually not an easy question. Like, the answer isn't that obvious. It's not really like, oh, here's how he did it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I first read this and think, what does that have to do with anything as far as the argument is concerned? How does Exodus 3, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like address their questions about the resurrection? How does God saying to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, prove the resurrection? Okay, well, let's think about this one. So first off, God said to Moses, I am am the God of. Okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those guys were all dead. Moses is on the scene at the time, right? So he didn't say, I was the God of, and I'll be your God too. He didn't say that. So maybe we could say that the present tense kind of implies that God's still in covenant relationship with these patriarchs. You know, which maybe means that these patriarchs are still alive in some sense, right? Be kind of odd for God to say to Moses, I'm the God of the dead. No, the point is that he's the God of the living. And even this phrase, the God of, is kind of interesting. It's a little bit subtle, but in the Old Testament, when the God of so and so is referred to, that's employed regularly to talk about God's active covenantal involvement in the lives of his people. So in Exodus, for instance, it's used multiple times in the context of the Exodus deliverance. Yahweh is the God of the Hebrews, which means he's active in their lives and available and he's going to deliver them and protect them and provide for them and all of that. He's their help and shield and deliverer and provider. I'm the God of your fathers. It means he acted to redeem and deliver them. He is their help and shield. He will be. So again, that seems to also maybe imply that this is going on still, even though they've died. So the Sadducees don't know the scriptures or the power of God, and Exodus 3 is testimony to the fact that death is no end to covenant promises. Like, this is really where the answer, I think, is the clearest. The point is, death can't terminate It can't end, it can't kill the promises that God made to his people. Death is not too strong an enemy for Yahweh. The hope of the resurrection is alive. It's clearly witnessed to in Exodus 3, the power of God to fulfill all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of his people, including the promises of the resurrection, is foundational to the meaning of Exodus 3. Let me just quote William Lane, and I think you'll see it here. 
If God has assumed the task of protecting the patriarchs from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune, which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, death, his protection is, is of little value. But it is inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarch some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death of which all the misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. If the death of the patriarchs is the last word of their history, there has been a breach of the promises of God guaranteed by the covenant and of which the formula, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is the symbol. It is in fidelity to his covenant that God will resurrect the dead. In citing Exodus 3, 6, Jesus showed how resurrection faith is attached in a profound way to the central concept of biblical revelation and the covenant and how the promised and how the salvation promised by God to the patriarchs and their descendants in virtue of the covenant contains implicitly the assurance of their res resurrection. So the point is death can't kill our hopes didn't kill it for the patriarch, patriarchs, didn't kill it for Moses, won't kill it for us. We have a living hope. I mean, just imagine if, if in this life only we have hope. I mean, what a raw deal for people who suffer terrible injustices and then die. Or who suffer terrible deformity or disability. What a raw deal for those who endure lack and lifelong frustration of good desires. Too bad for them. Or in another way, what folly it would be to sacrifice and spend your time and money and love and life and even risk your safety for temporal and eternal well-being of other people. Eternal well-being of others doesn't even exist. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are above all people most to be pitied. We are wasting our life. We might as well just grab all the pleasure we can because tomorrow we die. But that's not reality. Death can't kill. It can't end. It can't terminate the covenant promises of God to his people. That was certainly true for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can see how it's a setup a signpost for what Jesus came to do. The new covenant is the ultimate amen to this. The empty tomb is God's yes to our resurrection hope. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. By his death and resurrection, he has struck death with a death blow. And one day death will be no more. So death can't kill our hope. By Jesus' cross work and his resurrection, John eleven twenty five and 26 is the testimony of scripture and the power of God. And we need to know it. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So death cannot kill, it cannot end, it cannot terminate the covenant promises of God to us as people. That's true for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's true for all of his covenant people, all who trust and follow Jesus. So set in the broader context of the teaching and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this text about no more marriage in heaven, here's where it gets practical, is a text for you no matter what your life situation is, for people in good marriages and bad marriages, 
If you're in a good marriage, okay, let's just tease this out a little bit. Praise God. Make that marriage a winsome picture of the ultimate marriage. It's what it's supposed to be. Ephesians 5, right? The ultimate love story. Your marriage is a little scale model, a little reflection, a little echo of the marriage hope that is the greater love story, the ultimate love story, the infinitely greater love story. If you're in a bad marriage, it's not the death. A bad marriage is not the death of all your hopes. You have a happily ever after marriage hope that can't be killed by the deadness in your current marriage. And actually, that hope can even revive the motive for loving even when it's not reciprocated as you so deeply desire. So this is actually strangely encouraging, even though this is a strange text. And no marriage in heaven, that's actually hopeful and helpful for good marriages and bad marriages and for single and divorced as well. If you're single, even if you never marry on earth, you have a love that makes the greatest earthly love story pale like a little nightlight compared to the blazing sun fire of love that is yours now and will eternally be yours forever in perfect loving relationship with the triune God and Jesus Christ, who is our eternal husband. If you're divorced, if you've experienced the explosion and the fallout of earthly relational hopes, you have a hope that can't be killed by infidelity or cruelty or neglect or selfishness. This is also a text for sufferers. I mean, think of the African slaves in America, so many of whom were believers. Why did their spirituals focus on the hope of glory? Well, they didn't have earthly hopes. Were they so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good? No, the reason they were able to endure on earth was because they were so heavenly minded. Or think of Barry Steele. sat here for more years than I've been here. If only in this life, Barry had hope. What a pity. Poor Barry. Oh no, not poor Barry. Barry is free from his crippled, weak, pain-ridden body. And he is with Jesus rejoicing right now. But Barry's still waiting. He's waiting for the last saint to cross the finish line and for Jesus to return on that white horse to set the world to rights and make all things new when his resurrected body is going to be reunited with his made alive together with Christ's soul. And he is going to definitely beat me in a race, I'm sure. And that's the same for Chuck Barmore and Cornelia Walker, for those of you who've been here a while, and Barb Armstrong and Roy Wilson and Jim Miller and baby Bella 
and baby Daniel Hollister and your miscarried child and your loved one who died in Christ, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Praise God for the testimony of the scriptures and for the resurrection power of God. And let's not forget that the hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection is going to be way better than anything that we can imagine. So resurrection life is not just present life without end. It's not just a little minor upgrade. It's not just greater quantity of life. It's an entirely different quality of life. So here's the testimony of the scriptures and the power of God. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness forever. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, again, the testimony of the scriptures and the power of God, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, and what God has prepared for those who love him. I love what James Edwards says. He fires our imaginations when he writes this. God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. The glorious realities of the life to come can no more be accommodated to the pedestrian routines of earthly life than can butterflies be compared to caterpillars. Present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine a Beethoven piano concerto or the Grand Canyon at sunset. Only one amen to that. I mean, come on. So listen, like if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you're at yet with Jesus, don't you want this to be true? I mean, isn't there a memory trace like deep down that we were made to live forever? Why in books and movies and TV is there constantly, it's a trope, but it still moves us that there is death and resurrection just saw it last night. Lily was putting some Legos together that her brother got her for her birthday and watching Tangled. Anyway, I'm not going to go through. You go watch Tangled, but there's a resurrection at the end and, you know, I'm not crying. You're crying. Um, So death is not just inevitable and a part of the circle of life, you know. It's an intruder. It's an enemy. We know this. Well, where did that come from? It certainly doesn't come from Darwin's universe. It comes from the image and design of your creator on your soul. We ruined the life that God intended by rebelling against the one who gave it to us. And the wages of our sin is death. And we can't pay off what we owe. But praise God, Jesus can And he did. It is finished. So you can trust Jesus like we want to live. Death scares us. It is what, it's it's like the final enemy. It blows up all our hopes. Unless it doesn't. Unless Jesus conquered it. And in our place paid for our sins so that we can be made alive together with Christ like 
Turn from our sin, repent of that, trust in Jesus, get reconciled and reconnected to the God who gives us life. And it's not just life for now, it's life forever. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Believe this. And brothers and sisters, we need to know the scriptures and the power of God. We need to believe that the 25 million is ours. I mean, that's a terrible, paltry understatement. Like, if you read the New Testament, it's normal for the future hope to change the present and empower you and give you strength for endurance and joy through the suffering and all of that. So we need to know the scriptures and the power of God so that we can endure like normal Christians who have the blessed hope that changes everything. Like Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Barry is like, in my, I mean, in my mind, if I think of somebody that lived that way, he set his hope fully on the grace to be brought to him at the revelation of Jesus. And how in the world, with all of his suffering, was he thankful and joyful and strong in the midst of his weakness? Because... He knew the scriptures and he knew the power of God. And we can too. So we're going to close with two songs, Is He Worthy and Forever, okay? Both of which can fire our hope in the blessed hope and fill us with joyful, grateful praise for our worthy Savior who's given us this hope. So as the musicians come up, I just want to read one other text that speaks to our blessed hope from Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. So just listen to it, and then I will pray briefly, and then we're going to sing. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Lord, you are so worthy and you have done everything necessary to purchase the blessed hope of the resurrection. We believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.